Good afternoon, and welcome to our policy forum on the U.S.-Japanese strategic relationship. My name is Ted Galen Carpenter. I'm Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. If there is a more important strategic relationship uh, than the one between the United States and Japan in the 21st century, it would be very hard to find it. We have both countries concerned about a number of important economic and strategic issues in East Asia. And East Asia itself is an increasingly important area of concern for the United States. Japan and the United States are, have mutual concerns about a number of developments in that region, most notably the North Korean nuclear crisis and the uh, current impasse in the uh, six-party talks and longer-term concerns about the role of the People's Republic of China, concern about what kind of great power China is going to become. And I think the prevailing attitude in both countries is that the jury is still very much out on what kind of great power will eventually uh, emerge as the PRC continues to grow in both economic and military power. We have a very knowledgeable panel this afternoon to discuss these and other issues. Uh, our first speaker today is uh, Christopher Preble, my colleague here at the Cato Institute. Chris is Director of Foreign Policy Studies, and before joining Cato in February of 2003, he taught history at St. Cloud University and at Temple University. He is the author of J.F. Kennedy and the Missile Gap, a book discussing the political and economic roots of national security strategy in the late 1950s and early 1960s, an excellent work of history. And uh, those of us at Cato who deal with foreign policy uh, tend to accord history a tremendous amount of importance. I say that as someone who has a Ph.D. in history. Uh, we pride uh, ourselves on our work having a good deal of historical roots. He's also the lead author of the book Exiting Iraq, Why the United States Must End the Military Occupation and Renew the War Against Al-Qaeda. This was a report of a task force in the summer of 2004, and it is a, uh, a work that continues to grow in relevance and importance with the passage of time. Chris has had his work published in quite a number of outlets including USA Today, the Financial Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, the New Republic, Political Science Quarterly, the National Interest, and many, many others. He has also appeared on many television and radio news programs, including CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, Fox News Channel, NPR, Voice of America, and the BBC. As I suggested earlier, Chris is a historian. He holds his Ph.D. in history from Temple University. Our second speaker is Andrew Oros. Dr. Oros is Assistant Professor of Political Science and International Studies at Washington College and is currently a visiting scholar at the Segur Center for Asian Studies at George Washington University. Dr. Oros received his uh, Ph.D. from Columbia University and he has published uh, several monographs and articles, including Godzilla's Return, the New Nuclear Politics in an Insecure Japan, in the book Japan's Nuclear Option, published by the Stimson Center in 2003. 
and uh, the book Can Japan Come Back, a co-author with the Pacific Council on International Policy in 2002, his latest book, Normalizing Japan, Politics, Identity, and the Evolution of Post-War Security Practice, is forthcoming in 2007. Our third speaker is going to be arriving uh, later on uh, during the uh, program. He is uh, Michael Green, who is the Japan Chair and a Senior Advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as an Associate Professor of International Relations at Georgetown University. He served as the Special Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs and Senior Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council from January 2004 to December 2005. Before that, he had joined the NSC in April 2001 as Director of Asian Affairs with responsibility for Japan, Korea, and Australia and New Zealand. From 1997 to 2000, he was Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he directed study groups on Japan and security policy in Asia. He served as a Senior Advisor to the Office of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Department of Defense in 1997 and as a consultant to the same office until 2000. From 1995 to 1997, he was a research staff member at the Institute for Defense Analyses, and during the 1990s, he served in various capacities at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. His major publications include books, uh, Japan's Reluctant Realism, published by Palgrave St. Martin's in 2001, the U.S.-Japan Alliance, published by the Council on Foreign Relations in 1999, and Arming Japan, Columbia University Press, 1995. Dr. Green received his Ph.D. from SICE in 1994, and he is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Institute for International Security Studies. As I said, he will be joining us a bit later. Uh, our first speaker is Dr. Christopher Preble. He is the author of a very important new policy study by the Cato Institute, Two Normal Countries, Rethinking the U.S.-Japan Strategic Relationship, and that is available outside, uh, free of charge. Chris Preble. Thank you, Ted, and thanks uh, to all of you for attending today. Um, <clears throat> The United States and Japan have cooperated to address East Asian security issues for many years, uh, and the relationship continues to evolve. While the United States has retained a formal leadership role in the region through its maintenance of a sizable military garrison in, on Japanese territory and elsewhere in East Asia, policymakers in Tokyo have grown more confident and assertive, redefining the use of military force that are considered legitimate under Japan's officially pacifist constitution. Uh, in addition, uh, policy Japanese policymakers have increasingly pushed the envelope on the definition of self-defense, and they have steadily modernized the Japanese self-defense forces uh, into one of the most capable militaries on the planet. Outgoing Prime Minister Junichio Koizumi, and I, I, I hesitate a little bit to say outgoing, we're kind of already planning for his departure in September, but he has played a very important role in the evolution of the U.S.-Japan strategic relationship. The Prime Minister has been one of President Bush's most enthusiastic supporters in the wake of 9-11. He supported the dispatch of Japanese MSDF ships to the Indian Ocean in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. 
Uh, and then, of course, in the summer of 2003, uh, Japan dispatched over 500 ground forces to Iraq, a few hundred more stationed in Kuwait. The first such deployment of Japanese forces outside or into a de facto conflict zone since the end of World War II. Although some observers warned that Koizumi was getting too far ahead of Japanese public opinion, which was somewhat ambivalent on the question of dispatching troops to Iraq, he remains very popular, and his popularity has provided some latitude uh, for him in terms of defining Japan's security role. His successor will almost certainly uh, lack Koizumi's charisma, no disrespect to any of them, uh, but they will therefore suffer by, uh, by comparison. But notwithstanding this, I think it's clear that the next prime minister is likely to continue to move Japanese politics, and especially Japan's foreign policy, along the tra trajectory established by the flamboyant Koizumi. Now, this prospect worries many in East Asia, where many people fear that Japanese assertiveness is a manifestation of or a precursor to Japanese nationalism or even revanchism. There is a sense that any revision to the U.S.-Japan alliance would automatically constitute a re renunciation of the peaceful foreign policy currently enshrined within Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution. But I argue that Japan's emergence as a regional power, it is certainly welcomed in, in Washington and accommodating the strategic realities facing the United States and Japan, while at the same time assuaging the concerns of key East Asian countries. This is the uh, key challenge for Koizumi's successor, and that is the process, that process will fall to Koizumi's successor. Throughout the course of U.S.-Japan strategic relationships, some Americans have been reluctant to allow the Japanese to assume a more significant role in world affairs. For one thing, a Japan that's capable of defending itself and also capable of contributing to regional security uh, would reduce the need for U.S. forces in the region, and that concept is uh, anathema to those who believe in the supposed benefits of American unipolarity. But not all opposition stems from a desire to perpetuate American global dominance. Others fear the supposedly innately militaristic nature of J Japanese society. Eugene Matthews, uh, formerly with the Council on Foreign Relations, warned in 2003 that Japan's new nationalism could lead to the rise of a militarized, assertive, and nuclear-armed Japan, which would be a nightmare for the country's neighbors." Unquote. Ayako Doi and Kim Willinson, former editor and publisher respectively of the, Jap of the Daily Japan Digest, warned that Japan's embrace of pacifism in the aftermath of World War II might not persist long into the 21st century. Now, these are not idle fears, and I recognize that. It is clear that many people in Asian nations that were occupied by the Japanese Imperial Army in the 1930s and 1940s remain deeply concerned about the possible resurgence of Japanese nationalism. Those fears contribute to objections to any alteration in the current U.S.-Japan relationship, especially if such a change would make it easier for the Japanese to deploy forces abroad. Chinese in particular worried that any revision either to the Japanese constitution or the alliance would automatically constitute a renunciation of the peaceful foreign policy currently enshrined in Article 9. Now, that argument, particularly the argument that this would inevitably lead to Japanese rearm rearmament, ignores that Japanese rearmament has been going on for many years. And indeed, the term rearmament is inappropriate, given that Japan is already well-armed. According to official statistics compiled by the International Institute for Strategic Studies, Japan's defense expenditures in 2004 were exceeded only by the United States and the United Kingdom. Now, of course, these figures need to be taken with a grain of salt, because most people recognize that China's official defense expenditures 
aren't exactly accurate. But even if you leave aside, leave aside those three countries, the U.S., U.K., and PRC, we can still see that Japan spends more than the other two permanent members of the U.N. Security Council, France and Russia, but also more than Germany, and almost three times as much as India, two other countries that aspire to U.N. Uh, permanent, permanent membership on the Security Council. Now, although Japan's defense budget has been the focus of recent attention, Japan's defense expenditures, I should say, although there's been some recent attention to Japan's budget deficit, uh, Japan's defense ex expenditures do not pose a burden on J Japanese taxpayers that is any greater than other advanced liberal democracies facing uh, demographic crunch. Japanese per capita spending uh, is roughly equivalent to that of Germany and South Korea. Citizens in the United Kingdom pay more than twice as much per person, and the French spend almost twice as much as the Japanese. In other words, J Japan's defense spending could be expanded if changing security uh, circumstances so dictated. There would be trade-offs, to be sure there always are, but the same can be said and should be said of the United States. We trade off domestic spending priorities, both public and private, against the defense budget every day. Uh, the, Pen the Pentagon often wins this battle, uh, consuming about 4.3% of GDP. Uh, even still, U.S. military power, while still unmatched in absolute terms, is insufficient for maintaining a dominant position in all corners of the globe. Therefore, I argue U.S. policy should aim at burden shifting and not simply burden sharing wherever possible. The object of a new U.S.-Japan strategic relationship is to more equitably distribute the burdens of defense between the two allies, with each assuming primary responsibility for its most urgent security interests. One could reasonably argue, uh, object, that the deployment of U.S. forces in Japan poses not much of a burden, particularly when considered relative to the totality of U.S. defense spending. After all, Japanese host nation support has risen from 40 percent uh, of the total at the time of the first Gulf War to perhaps as much as 75 percent today. Japan claims to pay about $150,000 for every U.S. service member on its soil. But monetary compensation, even if it covered 100% of the cost of the troops in question, cannot account for the risks that the United States absorbs through its military presence in Japan and the security guarantee that expends, extends to Japan. Put more simply, the United States is not, nor should it be, in the business of contracting out its security services to foreign countries. If the United States is to focus on a few uh, areas of particular concern to the global war on terrorism, especially the Middle East, then U.S. policymakers must seek ways to quietly devolve security responsibilities to wealthy, stable, democratic allies, and the country best positioned uh, to address security challenge in, challenges in East Asia is Japan. Objectively, that is the case. Japan is well positioned to assume these burdens. But as already discussed, many people in East Asia remain deeply concerned about the possible resurgence of Japanese nationalism um, and have, have favored various impediments to a wider strategic role for Japan. It would be unwise to ignore the lingering psychological impact from Japan's actions in World War II. Of particular concern, of course, are the, uh, in the past, in the recent years, have been Koizumi's visits to the Yasukuni Shrine. Uh, visits which seem to fit a pattern in which ja uh, Japan tends to play down, the Japanese tend to play down the gravity of the Imperial Army's wartime abuses. Some demagogic politicians have gone so far as to suggest that the war crimes charges were trumped up by the victors. In another well-publicized instance, a controversy over several Japanese textbooks that overlook Japan's wartime abuses, this has contributed to a sense in Asia, particularly Korea and China, that some Japanese have not fully accepted guilt for the war or come to terms with it historically. 
But as I've already noted, Japan is well-armed. Meanwhile, we must be specific about what we mean by nationalism. Again, referring to the Matthews article in Foreign Affairs, uh, his argument is that Japan's growing self-reliance is indicative of resurgent nationalism. He urges that U.S. policy be delivered, directed at blocking such sentiments or at least attempting to channel them in a particular direction. But it's hardly unreasonable for Japan to seek some measure of independence from the United States. A desire that one's country be capable of defending itself might be a sign of nationalism, but if it is, it's no different from the nationalism expressed by the United Kingdom and dozens of other countries that have maintained a robust defensive capability in spite of security assurances from the United States. I stand by my claims that Americans and East Asians alike must overcome their latent fears of Japan, albeit perhaps for different reasons. Americans must appreciate that a commitment to to the patron-client status quo, which has the effect of inhibiting the emergence of an independent Japanese military power, unnecessarily increases America's own security burdens in in the present and well into the future. On a deeper level, however, people in the United States who remain unalterably opposed to a fundamental reorientation of the current U.S.-Japan relationship must understand that reflexive obstructionism could do irreparable harm to the relationship of trust and cooperation that has been carefully cultivated over the past 60 years. Obstruction implies mistrust, and it's hard to envision how the entire range of U.S.-Japanese relationships, military and diplomatic, as well as political and economic, could continue to flourish in such an environment. To its credit, the Bush administration has encouraged a more assertive stance on the part of the Japanese government. Although regional fears of resurgent Japan cannot be and, and should not be dismissed entirely, both the United States and Japan should continue their efforts to establish Japan as an independent pole of power in East Asia, a normal country that is no longer dependent on a distant patron for its defense. Now, the crux of the criticism of my paper, such as it has been, has focused on my relative skepticism about Japanese nationalism and my inability to spell out how and why a revision of the U.S.-Japan Security Alliance is in the interest of both countries. I've tried to answer these questions and criticisms today, and I'd welcome further comments in the Q&A. Let me close with a brief review of what I believe is the paper's most important contribution, a discussion of the strategic merits of a normal relationship with respect to regional security challenges. The Japanese are anxious for their country to behave and to be treated as a normal country, that is, a country responsible for its own defense and not dependent on the United States. Americans who are growing weary of our burdensome defense budget welcome changes that will allow the United States military to step back from its role as the world's policeman. To be sure, an equitable strategic partnership could make things more difficult for U.S. policymakers in certain instances, but I think that's a chance worth taking. Within the context of a more equitable U.S.-Japan alliance, if Japanese forces were deployed to any country far outside of the East Asian region, for example, their dispatch would be dependent on Tokyo's assessment of Japanese security interests and therefore would be far more likely to enjoy the support of the Japanese public. Um, The leading security challenge in the region, of course, in the past decade, and Ted already alluded to this, was the Clinton and now George Bush, uh, the George W. Bush administration's inability to prevent North Korean dictator Kim Jong-il from developing nuclear weapons. This ongoing crisis has been of concern uh, for Americans, but Japanese have still other reasons for distrusting Kim and his regime, and that is the ongoing uh, uh, controversy over the abduction of Japanese citizens in the 1970s and 1980s. As the regional threats become more serious, I worry that many Japanese may come to resent U.S. policies that appear to impede their reasonable efforts to defend themselves. Um, And on the one hand, it's it's unrealistic to expect that Tokyo would wait for U.S. 
permission, for example, to respond to a direct attack. Uh, but it's only slightly more plausible, I think, that the Japanese would refrain from using force in response to credible evidence of an imminent attack, or even more likely, that they would take prudent measures to defend themselves. And I want to dwell just very briefly on this problem of so-called extended deterrence, because the problems are well established. Whenever people talk about the supposed benefits of the American nuclear umbrella, I'm reminded of President Eisenhower's comment with respect to the American security guarantee to Europe at the height of the Cold War. In March 1953, Ike admonished his cabinet against thinking of the atomic bomb as a cheap way to solve things. Quote, it is cold comfort, he noted, for any citizen in Western Europe to be assured that, after his country is overrun and he is pushing up daisies, someone still alive will drop a bomb on the Kremlin, unquote. This statement, it seems to me, encapsulates rather nicely one of the central problems of extended deterrence, a problem recognized for 50 years. The pledge to sacrifice oneself, in the United States-Japan instance, we could use trading Tokyo for Toledo, if you will, lacks a certain credibility, a credibility that is much stronger when one is defending oneself. Along these lines, it does not seem to me surprising at all if Japan's confidence in the U.S. security pledge tends to wane over time. Uh, in short, I believe that a Japanese military operating independent of the U.S. but still constrained by the Jap pacifist impulses of the Japanese public could prove a credible deterrent, perhaps even more credible than the U.S. security guarantee has been. And what are the other security challenges in the region? Again, Ted alluded to those. Uh, they are, not to put too fine a, po a point on it, China. Because lingering hostility towards uh, North Korea pales in comparison to concerns about China's trajectory. This traje trajectory over time could collide with Japanese and American interests. And the open question is whether all three countries, Japan, the United States, and China, will be able to establish a new strategic balance or whether competition for influence in East Asia will lead to a clash that could threaten the lives of hundreds of millions of people on both sides of the Pacific. Common economic interests within Asia may lead to China's peaceful integration into the region, or China could turn away from its current course in political, of political and economic liberalization and revert to economic autarky imposed by military force. It's even possible that China could tr try to do both, become a revisionist power no longer content to accept regional security configurations in their present form, even if they held to their current course of economic reform. Against these unlikely but dangerous possibilities, I think it's, it's reasonable that a hedging strategy, that is, the allowance of an independent pole of power emerging in East Asia, should be welcomed, not just here in the United States, but also in East Asia. Let me close, then, with one final comment about Japanese nationalism. Uh, because, as I've explained now repeatedly, there's all these logical strategic arguments for why Japan should be uh, welcomed as an independent pole of power. There is this problem of resurgent nationalism or the sense of it. I looked for evidence of resurgent Japanese nationalism in the upcoming contest to replace Koizumi as prime minister. Now, I'm not going to try to handicap or predict the outcome of this process, and, and Mike Green and CSIS hosted a very fine conference a few weeks ago on this subject. But I am struck by one salient fact. Among the four likely LDP candidates, Shinzo Abe, Yasuo Fukuda, Taro Aso, and Sadakazu Tanagaki, Aso is seen as the most nationalist of the four, the most outspoken defender of the Yasukuni Shrine. He approves of, of Koizumi's visits to the shrine, and he once said that Emperor Akihito should someday visit the shrine. All this, and yet, according to the most recent polling data that I've seen, is support among the Japanese public numbers in the low single digits. 
Okay, now, I recognize that Japanese politics is not popular in the American sense and that there are factions, the election takes place among LDP members, etc. I understand all that. But I wonder why, if the nationalism card is so popular politically, Shinzo Abe is playing at Koi and Aso is a functional also. Even more to the point, every story that I've read on the two-way race between Abe and Fukuda has stressed that at least one of the factors in Fukuda's rise can be attributed to his stance on diplomatic issues, especially his stated aim of improved relations with China. In short, if nationalism were politically popular, we'd be seeing more rather than less of it. Accordingly, I stand by my statement from my paper that it would be unwise to allow the ghosts of World War II to forever dictate the conduct of U.S. policy toward Japan. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Chris. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here today on this important topic to see such a, a large audience on, on this issue. I hear the Cato Institute regularly draws big audiences for Asia programs, and as a professor of Asian politics, I'm very pleased to see that. Um, I, I wanted to start here uh, by noting... Um, how I see myself positioned on, on this panel. I'm the, the middle speaker uh, here, and I think in some ways it, I'm, I'm, I have the middle opinion as, as well um, between what I imagine we'll hear from Mike Green shortly um, and his preference for a more robust uh, alliance deepening uh, between the U.S. and Japan in the future um, and, uh, on the other hand, um, as we can see from Chris Preble's excellent uh, report that I hope you've all read, uh, the call for um, the withdrawal of U.S. permanent bases uh, in, in Japan. Um, but in another way, I think that I'm the outlier on the panel uh, because I'm much more ambivalent about the idea of encouraging Japan to play a greatly expanded military role, which is implicit in both of these, these positions. Um, on the one hand, a U.S. A US uh, withdrawal from permanent bases in, in Japan uh, requires a much greater military uh, role for Japan in the region, um, and obviously on the alliance deepening side as well. I think the current movement and pressure on Japan is to play a greater role the alliance. Um, the bottom line for me, I think, that I'll, I'll develop over the next few minutes is that I think the U.S. should be uh, helping Japan to prepare for uh, and manage the new security threats that it faces, but ultimately it should be careful not to push uh, our worldview, the U.S. worldview, um, on Japan as far as how security threats are, are perceived in the region. But before I, I develop that a bit further, um, let me just briefly provide a context, I think, of why we're even talking about this today. Um, first of all, as, as I'm sure most of you in Washington are aware, the U.S. itself is undergoing a broad review of, it, of our global military posture. And because we have such a deep military alliance with Japan, this, this necessarily affects Japan deeply. Um, secondly, um, there's continued and perhaps deepening traditional security concerns in East Asia. And by traditional security concerns, I mean the kinds of things that, that Ted uh, alluded to at the beginning in his opening remarks, um, a, a rising uh, military uh the rising military power of China, um, nuclear proliferation concerns um, from North Korea, uh, in initially sparked in East Asia by India and, and Pakistan. Um, and then finally, uh, what, what academics refer to as new security threats, um, terrorism being, being the first of them in the American context, but also um, smaller scale weapons of mass destruction, you know, as opposed to the large nuclear buildups during the Cold War. Um, and even uh, state collapse, the 
fear of state collapse. Let's not forget it wasn't that long ago that one of the biggest concerns that many security experts had in East Asia was the complete collapse of Indonesia, uh, political order in Indonesia. And still, what, although on the one hand, many of us are concerned in North, with regards to North Korea of a nuclear threat from North Korea, an equally uh, significant security threat from North Korea is state collapse from North Korea and the kinds of uh, issues that would uh, generate as far as uh, mass, probably mass uh, departure of North Koreans south uh, to South Korea and maybe even uh, on boats to Japan. And so these, this context requires um, a new Japanese defense posture and a new U.S.-Japan alliance parameters. And there's really no debate in Japan or the United States over this basic point that Japan needs to retool its defense posture and that Japan needs to retool the alliance with the United States. The question is how, how to do this, how best to do this. Um, and I think you will hear sort of three different perspectives on how, how this might best be done. Um, my, my focus, and in my, my forthcoming book, Normalizing Japan, I spend a lot of atten- a lot of pay a lot of attention, excuse me, to how the U.S. has pressured Japan to act in a certain direction. But my my main focus is how the domestic political system in Japan has dealt with the question of, of defense policy. And this is a topic that I find is much easier to discuss to an American audience today because the American uh, American politics over defense have changed so dramatically in the last five or six years that I think it's easier for Americans to understand how defense politics can become very political. And this is, the, this is an issue that's been the case in Japan for really the last 50 years. Uh, defense politics have been extremely politicized, and we're entering a period where uh, there may be new directions that Japan takes uh, due to um, the pressure from political leaders. <clears throat> so on the political front... I think the number one political problem uh, in Japan regarding defense is convincing the Japanese public of the need for a new defense strategy. This may seem very clear to uh, experts in in the U.S.-Washington nexus, uh, but uh, I think it's quite important not to get too far away from what uh, general public opinion is in Japan. And the starting point here we need to remind ourselves is that Japan's old defense strategy, or some would say current defense strategy, was actually very successful. After all, no Japanese soldier has been killed in combat for over 60 years. Compare this to the U.S. experience in South Korea, in Vietnam, in Iraq, and other places in the world. Um, uh, there's a recent BBC poll that many have cited recently. Actually, Mike Green was the one that pointed pointed this out to me. Uh, BBC conducted a world poll looking at uh, how countries are viewed in the world, whether they're viewed positively or negatively, and whether their contributions are viewed positively. And Japan actually topped the list on this poll as the country that was most often cited as playing a positive role in the world. 31 of the 33 countries polled, I- excuse me, in 31 of the 33 countries polled, over 50% of, the, of those polled saw Japan Japan is playing a positive role in the world. The only two countries that didn't pass this 50% threshold was South Korea and China, which is an important point uh, for Japan's uh, neighbors, and I'm going to come back to that. Um, in the same poll, the U.S. Uh, was seen in only 13 of the 33 countries as playing a positive role in the world by over 50% of the public. Um, and as, as I think all of you know, Japan is one of the richest countries in the world. It leapfrogged uh, the European countries during the Cold War. Um, and 
less often acknowledged, Japan is, in fact, I think, a leader in the world in, in, in many ways, a leader in Asia as well. Uh, in fact, um, Japan has quite successfully uh, created uh, its, its kind of economic model throughout Asia, uh, and it leads in that direction. So looking at these four points, you see Japan's security strategy has really been quite successful. And so how the political sphere can convince the broad Japanese public that they should do something dramatically differently than they've done in the past is actually a really big challenge. Challenge. Even uh, and, and and this has to begin by convincing the Japanese that there are new security threats that need to be faced, and these security threats are of such a fundamentally different nature that a very different strategy needs to be pursued. And I think that's a very hard sell. I think it's clear that there needs to be an adjustment of Japanese security policy to to respond to new threats. But doing something very different, having U.S. withdrawal from Japan entirely, having the alliance deepen to the extent that Japan's neighbors are concerned about this, I think is very is is a very difficult. Sell politically. So that said, however, um, the Japanese public, I think, is, is aware that, that, um, that the security environment has changed, and I'm going to cite some public opinion polls in, in just a moment. Uh, but we see this in, in policy outcomes, right? Japanese policy has, in fact, changed quite a bit in the last 10 years or so. We can look at specific programs like U.S.-Japan cooperation on missile defense, uh, the Japanese development of surveillance satellites for the first time. Uh, Chris Preble mentioned the overseas deployments of the self-defense forces, um, the operations recently in support of of um, American operations in Afghanistan and Iraq are examples of the self-defense forces being deployed to what Chris, I think, rightly refers to as de facto combat areas, even though Japanese law explicitly prohibits self-defense forces from being dispatched to actual uh, combat areas. Uh, and preceding these recent deployments, the self-defense forces were dispatched um, to a number of uh, places in the world uh, in response to uh, or in conjunction with um, international organizations, uh, beginning in Cambodia and the 1990s. Um, and the alliance itself has changed and has been has been evolving. And this is something that is not new uh, uh, to the U.S.-Japan alliance. Um, uh, again, uh, Mike Green, I'm sure, will, will note that uh, the U.S.-Japan alliance has been consistently evolving from, from the very beginning of the alliance. Um, and, and very recently, um, the so-called SCC agreements, uh, especially in October 2005, and then uh, the sort of restatement of these goals um, in May of uh, uh, just last month, um, are examples of how the alliance is adjusting to, to um, new security realities. But I'd like to come back now to uh, some of the, the limits of... Um, of how, how this alliance is going to, to evolve. Um, and on the one hand, there's the positive side for those that want to see a really changed alliance. Um, recent public opinion polling in Japan, I particularly recommend to you um, the so-called uh, SAGE survey, which is the study of attitudes and global engagement that comes out of Washington State University and International Christian University in Tokyo. Um, and they conducted um, multinational polling in the U.S., Japan, and in European countries in the autumn of 2004. Um, and we can see the extent of shift in Japan over, uh, over security issues. Um, over 90% of the Japanese polled considered uh, the world a more dangerous place in 2004 uh, than compared to 25 years previously, over 90%. Um, so we could expect a kind of policy shift based on this, this new um, change. Over half of those polled feared an attack from Japan, uh, excuse me, attack on Japan from abroad. Um, and nearly 80% believe that Japan should play a more active role in international affairs, with three-quarters, 
So 75% of those polled saying that Japan should exert a more active international leadership. So there is a recognition that Japan's a, that the world is a more dangerous place, and Japan needs to play a greater role in this. And these the figures from this Sage poll are consistent with uh, various other um, newspaper polling. Um, the Yomiuri Shimbun uh, Yomiuri newspaper found uh, even back in in 1999. Um, 56% of Japanese thought Japan was very or somewhat likely to be attacked by a foreign country in the near future, and over 70% expected war or conflict in the near future in areas surrounding Japan that would affect Japanese security. So the Japanese are aware of the security environment, but, but we should see that the important point is how Japanese see the appropriate response to this more difficult security environment. And again, I'll remind an American audience that there's a very big uh, range of opinions in the United States about how to respond to new security threats. Very few Americans uh, question uh, the threat to terrorism, uh, the threat of terrorism to the United States, but there's a very wide range of opinion about how this threat should be responded to. Uh, and in Japan as well, this is what we see. Um, and so let me again mention some, some polling that comes out of this SAGE uh, survey. Um, so um, nearly half nearly half, 47% of Japanese view war as illegitimate, even if your own state is attacked. So even if Japan is attacked, almost half of Japanese see a war on the attacking country as illegitimate. Uh, far less than a quarter, so only 21% of Japanese believe that a strong defense will result in peace, where almost twice as many as that, 42%, believe that disarmament is the better course to peace. Uh, strikingly, Japanese overwhelmingly believe that war can be avoided through international cooperation. 86% of Japanese believe war can be entirely avoided versus uh, only 42% of Americans um, who, who have that view. And when asked of the most effective way to dealing with terrorism, when we ask Japanese this, two-thirds, uh, nearly two-thirds, 64%, uh, point to the United Nations as the most effective venue for fighting terrorism, uh, followed by over a third, 38%, um, who encouraged the foster of new alliances uh, through diplomacy. So given Japanese public opinion on security issues conveyed through this kind of data, uh, it's not surprising that the post-Cold War pattern of extending the boundaries slightly of Japanese security practice but continued the basic mooring of Japanese security policy is so uh, resilient. So in my view, despite a, a changed international environment that Japanese clearly recognize, there's really not any support for a fundamental departure uh, in, in continuing Japanese security practices. Um, people often talk about Japan as a normal nation, and this was a term uh, coined by um, one of Japan's big political leaders, Ichiro Ozawa. And it's, it's interesting to note that if you look at, at Mr. Ozawa's uh, rhetoric about Japanese security today, it's much more in line with what Japanese call a civilian power than what Americans have taken the idea of normal nation to mean. So even the person who, who, who created this catchphrase, normal nation, doesn't really want Japan to be a normal nation in the sense that we often talk about Japan in in the course of the alliance. So what do I think that this leaves? Um, well, I want to I conclude on two points. Um, very briefly, what I think the alliance is most likely to look like 10 years from now, and then, um, then conclude on the idea of why this ideal might not be realized, so what we need to be concerned about.
Um, what do I think the alliance is going to look like um, 10 years from now? I think we'll see greater interoperability and joint capabilities between the U.S. and Japan. I think we'll have a working missile defense system. We'll have greater intelligence sharing and, cap and capabilities, for example. Um, I think that we'll have more experience working together, the U.S. and Japan, in third countries. We'll build on our experience in the Indian Ocean and Iraq. I think that there'll be a, a greater role for the self-defense forces within the alliance framework, including managing and perhaps even operating bases in Japan. There may be a movement along the lines that Chris is saying as far as Japan taking greater control of bases in Japan, a, a greater use perhaps of joint bases, U.S.-Japan bases. Um, and um, the corollary is realizing the goal of base consolidation in Okinawa and elsewhere, which, after all, has been on the agenda for 10 years. And just declaring it last month that this is going to happen doesn't at all mean that it's, in fact, going to happen. And it may be quite a while before this is realized, thus the 10-year time frame. And um, finally, uh, I think we will see a greater leadership role for Japan within the alliance, including perhaps as a leader of uh, regional security uh, forums. And so, in the end, 10 years from now, I think we will see a more confident, more capable capable partner and um, someone able to, a country, Japan, be better able to manage these partnerships. Um, that's how I, I see the alliance moving forward. I don't think that it will be quite as robust as, uh, as many would like to see through this SCC report. And in fact, I think the majority of Americans engaged in managing the U.S.-Japan defense relationship and the majority of Japanese engaged in managing the U.S. defense relationship, U.S.-Japan defense relationship, I think would like to see a much greater deepening, a more robust presence than is likely to happen. Um, so why might this ideal not be realized? I'll conclude on this point. Um, I think that the most likely reason, and coming back to my, my interest in Japanese domestic politics, is in fact domestic politics, Japanese domestic politics. Uh, there is a concern, I think, uh, that we need to monitor of political popularism in Japan that could lead to a kind of rising nationalism that eschews a U.S. physical presence um, or characterizes in the political world Interoper what we call interoperability among defense specialists as some kind of dependence. So I think if we see a rising sense of assertiveness among Japanese, it could conversely view a deepening of the alliance with the U.S. as a negative phenomenon. You can already see in Japanese opinion journals uh, often a reference to the U.S.-Japan alliance as one of the principal obstacles between greater relationships between the U.S. and China. Right? And I think that most Americans see the alliance as a way of keeping a good relationship between the U.S. and uh, between Japan and China, uh, but conservatives often refer to the relationship as an obstacle. Um, I think one scenario that's easily imaginable, Chris Preble talked about host nation support, this high degree of host nation support uh, that Japan provides up to U.S. forces in Japan. And I think that in, in, in the context of, de of decreasing budgets uh, in Japan, the Japanese defense spending has actually decreased for three years in a row now. Uh, we can see, uh, I, I can imagine a call for reducing host nation support in exchange for paying for, for more hardware like missile defense and, and other programs. Um, I think it's possible we can imagine a new politicization of bases uh, due to due to a new unfortunate incident um, that could that could take place, such as the the rape of the Okinawa girl that took place in the 1990s, um, or a slow movement on new agreements that are just being formed that lead to increased pressure. 
And finally, I think that there that that a, a final fear that links to what the U.S. can do in this process is that I think there could be a reaction to the U.S. pushing Japan too far to increase its capabilities or roles and missions. Uh, and this could take place actually whether or not the U.S. actually is pushing too hard. Right. The question is how this is framed in a Japanese political context. The question of gaiatsu, a foreign pressure in Japan, is a very salient tool used in Japanese domestic politics. Often Japanese bureaucrats or Japanese politicians will push a policy they want by saying, oh, the U.S. is forcing us to do this. Right. And, and sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's not true. It's a way of, of, of Japanese achieving their objectives. And this can, this, so this can work to the U.S. advantage. It can work against the U.S. advantage. Um, more briefly, I'll just mention two points sort of telegraphically. Apart from Japanese domestic politics, two other reasons why I think my vision of how the U.S.-Japan alliance is likely to evolve, um, two reasons why that might not happen. There could, of course, be a vastly changed international environment in the next 10 years. There could be an actual hot war in East Asia. There could be uh, you know, a, a nuclear conflagration in North Korea. There could be uh, an actual hot war uh, between China and Taiwan. Uh, and these things could, could really change the, the domestic politics of defense uh, in Japan. And globally as well, there could be another 9-11 type incident that leads to a, a, a global rethinking of defense. Um, and, and along those lines, uh, I think it's possible but quite unlikely that U.S. domestic politics could change to such an extent that calls, for example, for U.S. troops to come home that could affect Japan in, 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 in an incidental way. So in sum, I think that we can expect much of the same in the next uh, 10 years uh, as in the last 10 years, alliance deepening, capability expansion, and a number of tough political negotiations to manage this. Um, however, I, I don't think that this path is inevitable. U.S. pushing Japan too hard could lead to a backlash. Um, Japanese politicians ignoring domestic or international public opinion could also have adverse results. Um, I think that allied management is on the right track, uh, generally speaking, for rethinking a new environment and new, new strategy. Um, I don't support a dramatic reconfiguration on either side. Uh, I do, however, uh, commend highly uh, the questions that Chris Pebble raises in, in his provocative and, and well-researched recent policy analysis, this two normal countries, which I guess you all have in your hand now. Um, while I disagree with the ultimate conclusion supporting U.S. withdrawal and a strong encouragement for a greater military role um, in, by Japan, I think is an excellent overview of some of the central issues that the U.S. and Japan face, and it makes a very strong case for the need for greater public attention to these issues beyond just a small group of alliance managers. Thank you. Our third speaker has arrived. Uh, we're delighted to have him here. I presented his bio a little bit earlier, and uh, we're extremely pleased that he was able to make it today to give his perspective on the U.S.-Japanese uh, strategic relationship. Our third and last speaker will be Mike Green. Um, thank, thank you very much. <clears throat> thank you for inviting me. I apologize for being late. Chris asked me to think about where we are in the alliance and wh what our major priorities ought to be. And as I sat on 395 waiting to cross the bridge to get here, I thought our major priority ought to be to invent a joint U.S.-Japan teleportation system <laughs> so that we can all make our conferences on time. <laughs> Actually, I want to applaud Chris and Cato for um, holding this meeting and for getting such a, an outstanding turnout 
um, of distinguished um, experts on this subject. Um, there, there, there was a time not too long ago when um, a discussion of the U.S.-Japan alliance um, would uh, not have uh, resulted in such a large turnout. I think um, we're starting uh, in the broader intellectual community in the United States to think about the relationship with Japan, about the alliance, in a very healthy way. Um, we have a tendency in this country to swing wildly back and forth uh, between the China boom and the Japan boom, and <clears throat> we have a 200-year history of doing this. Um, and um, I remember in, in 1989, 1990, um, uh, senior economists at, I think it was Goldman Sachs um, and Nomura Research saying that Japan's GDP would surpass the U.S. GDP by 2005. Um, around the same time frame, um, one presidential candidate, Dick Ephardt, saying the U.S. and Japan have fought the Cold War. Excuse me, the U.S. and Russia have fought the Cold War. Japan has won. <coughs> um, uh, Japan uh, represents an economic system and a new strategic outlook that's the ultimate threat. And then, of course, the coming war with Japan, a book that came out in 1990. Well, you know, not only a few years ago, um, you had the coming war with China hit the bookshelves. Um, you had projections last year from, I think it was Goldman Sachs again, saying that China's GDP will surpass the U.S. in, 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 in the middle of this century, and so on and so forth. And people get on these linear projections. And, um, and just sort of rush like um, my nephew's um, fourth grade soccer team all in one side of the field and, and, and miss the real action um, in the broader strategic landscape. <clears throat> um, the reality probably is that in 15 or 20 years, um, China will hit a speed bump. Its economy will slow down. It will have a lot of domestic problems, a lot of unresolved political and security issues. Um, Japan will probably have a reasonable 1.52, 2.5% growth rate, but will be mar far more active in terms of its um, security and foreign policy identity. And India will be vying and playing at about the same rank based on its um, new consolidation of national power. And I think um, we should be looking at the U.S.-Japan alliance in that context and uh, keeping our eye on the whole game. And so I applaud the organizers for, for taking this look at the U.S.-Japan relationship. I thought I would talk about the alliance. I think, um, I will say, I don't know if anyone will disagree, but I think this is the best shape the U.S.-Japan alliance has been in in the post-war period. Um, but I, I think it's worth looking at why that is, um, at what the next agenda should be, and also, as Chris did, uh, excuse me, um, as Andrew did at the end of his presentation, what variables might come in to uh, challenge us or test uh, the alliance relationship. Um, why is the alliance strong right now? Um, a lot of credit obviously goes to President Bush and Prime Minister Koizumi. Um, they have a, um, I can attest to this from close-up observation, they have a, um, a, a relationship that's based on a very um, uh, overlapping worldview and also a, a common view of politics and of the nature of good and evil and the nature of the world generally. Um, they both have slightly quirky senses of humor. They both like baseball. Um, there are differences. Prime Minister Kuzmi likes singing Elvis. President Bush doesn't. Um, but, um, but, but on the whole, they, they, uh, they get along very well and have had an excellent relationship. One, which is not just about being friends, but frankly, where um, each leader um, has often um, held off on decisions, key decisions, until they had a chance to talk to the other. That's actually surprisingly rare in the history of the U.S.-Japan alliance and the relationship between presidents and prime ministers. Um, that the Prime Minister of Japan had the confidence to call the President and give him advice, or that the President of the United States would actually solicit that advice or wait on key decisions before hearing it. All very important, but I think it's 
It's more, fortunately, than just their relationship because, of course, Prime Minister Kuzumi steps down in the fall and President Bush has only two and a half years left. Um, I think there's a broader um, strategic cultural um, uh, convergence in many respects between the U.S. and Japan. There are many important differences, and we should always be cognizant of them. But I think in a broad sense, both the Japanese and the American people have a sense that there is a Hobbesian uh, evil in the world. Um, we both have our Lockean idealistic um, um, uh, dimensions in our strategic culture as well. Um, but 9-11, the abductee uh, issue, the North Korean abductee issue, the Tepodong missile launched by North Korea, both the American and Japanese people have ex experienced direct threats to their um, security. Um, they're a little bit different. Japan um, clearly will not list terrorism as the number one threat, whereas the American people would. But in some ways, that doesn't matter. In a broad sense, for each of us to deal with our threats, I think there's a, there's a broad view in both countries that we need this alliance relationship, which is in part why when Abe Shinzo went on TV to justify the dispatch of, um, of destroyers and, and, refuel and uh, oilers to the Indian Ocean, he talked about China and North Korea. And he talked about the overall um, uh, bargain that Japan gets out of the alliance relationship. I think the um, engineering of the alliance uh, over the past few years also is important. Probably everyone here is familiar with the um, 2001 um, so-called Armitage Report. Um, it was actually written by um, or chaired by Joe Nye of Harvard, who was President Clinton's Assistant Secretary of Defense, and by Rich Armitage um, in the lead-up to the... Um, 2000, uh, the, the next uh, presidential, um, uh, uh, excuse me, it was, it was late 2000, so it was in the lead up to the um, November 2000 election. And um, Rich Armitage and Joe Nye tried to gather the players who they thought were likely to be in a Bush or Gore administration um, to try to come up with a, 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 con a contract, basically, um, uh, on how the um, uh, alliance with Japan and broader Asia policy should be managed, no matter who wins. And if Al Gore had won, it would probably be remembered uh, and referred to as the Nye Report. But, of course, President Bush won, so it is the Armitage Report. But it was an important bipartisan um, agreement. Um, and most of the Republicans in the group joined the administration, Jim Kelly, Paul Wolfowitz, um, Torkel Patterson, myself, um, Bob Manning, and others. Um, the main thrust, though, and where there was bipartisan agreement, is that we need to treat Japan as a, as a, as a strong alliance partner. Um, the comparison was made to Britain, um, and this was somewhat controversial. Some people said um, it's not appropriate to talk about the U.S.-U.K. alliance as a model for Japan. Um, and some people even accused us of wanting Japan to have nuclear weapons like Britain or to wear bowlers and carry umbrellas and speak with English accents. Um, the point was not that Japan should be, uh, come Britain. Uh, the, the argument was really for the, for the um, U.S. government. Uh, that is to say that if we have a major crisis in the world or if we see a challenge coming over the horizon, it's usually the instinct of senior U.S. officials to coordinate on these kinds of global challenges with the U.K. We've been doing it for a long, long time. And the point that this report by Rich Armitage and Joe Nye was trying to make was, in the case of Japan, we ought to have the same instincts in the U.S. government. We, sh we, oughtn't, we should not be going to Japan, as we did in the 1990-91 Gulf War, after the fact, to collect uh, money. That strategy worked at that time. In fact, as many of you know, we made a profit. But that's not a sustainable basis for managing the U.S.-Japan alliance or the international system. So the philosophy, everyone thought, should be that when we go into a problem, we, we sit down with our Japanese allies the way we do instinctively with our British allies, 
Um, and we talk about what the end game ought to be and what aspects of national power we can each bring to, bring to the problem and make sure we've queued up the leaders to talk about it and have that kind of um, philosophy. The second element of the Armitage Nye strategy was um, no more gaiatsu, external pressure, that um, uh, Japan in its own right um, is a player, um, shares broadly our values and our interests, um, that um, gaiatsu and pressure breeds resentment, um, stifles strategic thinking, um, and uh, ultimately um, it doesn't get the U.S. side the best that Japan can contribute, which is money, of course, people, but also ideas. Um, so putting away the idea of gaiatsu, and on the economic side as well, that, uh, and in fact, uh, the relationship has been structured so that we have this economic partnership for growth where both sides are talking behind closed doors, not the U.S. Um, threatening um, uh, trade sanctions against Japan. Then the third element was that the, uh, the cap-in-the-bottle mentality is over, that it is not the U.S. job to prevent Japan from playing a role in the world, that we should be encouraging Japan to be ambitious and have faith that the Japanese people's democracy um, and the Japanese people's instincts, which were just, um, I think, very well articulated by Andrew, are going to carry Japan um, uh, in the right direction. And, and we ought to be encouraging Japan to be doing more not less, but not using gaiatsu in a broad sense, raise the bar of expectations. Well, that was the idea. Um, it wasn't um, a bilateral uh, uh, report. It was done for the U.S. side by the um, people in both parties and in the U.S. who had an interest in the alliance relationship. And it wasn't clear how this would be received exactly on the Japanese side. Um, I went into the NSC myself in April 2001 about two weeks before um, Junichiro Koizumi was elected president of the LDP. And um, I've, many, some of you have probably heard me talk about this, but we, um, the U.S. government, didn't know quite what to make of, of the Koizumi, Koizumi phenomenon. And we formed a small group, um, uh, which Robin, Wright, uh, well, Robin White from the State Department joined, I, I saw her in the audience, and others from DOD and Treasury and elsewhere. Um, interestingly, most of these people in all the different agencies um, spoke Japanese because they had been Mansfield Fellows or Jets. Um, so you had this, this really quite um, unprecedented gathering of officials at the um, Deputy Assistant Secretary Office Director level, all of whom in their own right had a good instinct for Japan, which, which also I think is one of, the, one of the contributing factors to the health of our alliance. Um, and after looking over this um, new Prime Minister, we recommended up to our bosses that uh, Prime Minister Kuzumi was exactly the right leader for this vision um, in the Armitage Report, a vision that President Bush and National Security Advisor Rice, um, Secretary Rumsfeld, and Secretary Powell had, in, had endorsed. Um, uh, this is also a story some of you have heard me tell, but we decided to have a, uh, a meeting at Camp David um, so the two leaders could spend a lot of time together and begin developing a personal and strategic relationship. Um, one of the big um, uh, debates and one of the most important jobs of the White House officials is to determine what the gift is going to be. Um, my foreign ministry counterpart um, really wanted the heavy leather bomber jacket with fur collar that Prime Minister Blair had received when he went to Camp David in early March. And I pointed out that Maryland in late June is not a place where you want to be wearing a heavy bomber jacket with a fur collar on, 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 on national and international TV. So we went back and forth. Then we went with the baseball and glove gift, and then we had a debate where my foreign ministry counterpart was worried that if, if the president gave Prime Minister Kuzmi a baseball and a glove, he might they might start playing catch ball and President Bush might get hit in the head or the Prime Minister might throw it into the woods and the President would have to run and get it and it would all be captured on CNN and BBC and wouldn't that be a disaster? So after long negotiations, 
Um, at the Hay Adams, we finally agreed, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll have the president give the baseball and the glove, but no, no catch ball. So President Bush goes to Camp David. He gives Prime Minister the glove and the baseball, and what do they do? They start playing catch ball, um, which was a perfect metaphor for the alliance, first of all, because they ignored the bureaucrats, um, but second, because this, this whole, you know, and also secondly, I suppose, the common baseball culture. But third, um, the image of the Prime Minister throwing the ball, the President catching it, throwing back, was a good metaphor for what was um, conceived in the Armitage report, that we ought to be developing our strategies together. This, um, the, the summit was great, by the way. The Prime Minister sang Elvis, uh, the, 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 they went for walks, they threw baseballs, hit it off really, really well. Um, the test came, however, on 9-11, because it's all very nice to put it in a joint statement, as we did. Um, but the test came on 9-11, and um, the, uh, the, the Japanese system and the US-Japan alliance and the American commitment to working with Japan, I think, passed that test um, with flying colors. Um, the um, Prime Minister put out very quickly um, a seven-point um, statement on how the Japan would, would work with the US and the international community to defeat terrorism. Very importantly, Prime Minister Kuizumi was one of the few world leaders who said to the president, you must defeat terrorism. Most world leaders, frankly, expressed condolences and looked at it as a criminal issue and, and said, you know, we have to find the people who did this and brought them to justice. Um, Prime Minister Kuizumi was one of very, very few world leaders who on their own conceived of this and said to the president, this is a war uh, against terrorism and you have to win. Very early on, he articulated that. So um, there was a, a very strong um, strategic uh, convergence in their thinking on that. But Japan did things it had never done before. Um, the dispatch of the Maritime Self-Defense Forces to the, to the Indian Ocean to support um, operations in Afghanistan. The um, dispatch, of course, of the um, forces of the ground self-defense forces and air self-defense forces to Samoa, where they performed superbly and, by the way, became popular um, heroes within uh, Japanese media. Other tests came, the North Korean nuclear crisis, and in the six-party talks, um, the Japanese uh, delegation was um, a strong player, um, and U.S.-Japan coordination was, was good. And the president um, listened to and talked to Prime Minister Kuizumi uh, frequently on this. The Jim Kelly mission in October 2002 to Pyongyang was largely a result of the advice of Prime Minister Kuizumi. So um, in many respects, the alliance um, passed the test. Usually when there is a, um, a redefinition or a reaffirmation or some upgrading of the U.S.-Japan alliance, um, it involves um, some greater step by Japan to take risk in the international system, accompanied by a U.S. move to reduce the U.S. footprint. And, and so you can go back to the transition to the 1960 Mutual Security Treaty. And um, Prime Minister Kishi, um, in the treaty, agreed as a sovereign nation, because the occupation was now over, that Japan would um, allow the staging, uh, stationing of U.S. bases in Japan, Article 6, for the stability of the Far East, that Japan was, in effect, signing on for the Cold War as a sovereign nation. And in exchange, um, the U.S. agreed to end rights it had under the previous security treaty to maintain internal order. Um, then you had the Okinawa reversion, 69, 70, where President Nixon and Prime Minister Sato had an arrangement. Prime Minister um, Sato agreed in a joint statement that the security of Korea, the Korean Peninsula, and the Taiwan Straits are, are important to Japan. Um, President Nixon agreed to return Okinawa. Um, that was a big deal for Prime Minister Sato to say that, and the Japanese Defense Agency spent the next 10 years burying it as far as possible inside their files so they wouldn't have to implement it. 
1996, um, the joint statement between President Clinton and Prime Minister Hashimoto, Japan agrees to um, revise the defense guidelines and talks about situations in the area surrounding Japan as a mission area, um, expanding geographically somewhat the concept of Japan's responsibilities in support of the U.S. in the region. Um, the U.S. side agrees in the SACO process to return key um, uh, land in Okinawa. So every time you had this, Japan takes more risk, the U.S. returns, re reduces the burden. This time was different. Um, there was no um, quid pro quo. There was no uh, Okinawan uh, deal or basis deal in exchange for Japan stepping up and playing a larger security role in um, Iraq and in the response to terror. That says a lot. It says that Japan's strategic culture has changed. It says that, um, that the Japanese leadership and the public see the value of the alliance and the importance of Japan's security role on its own terms, not just as a quid pro quo for reducing the U.S. presence. It says that Japan's definition of sovereignty is now uh, a lot more about dealing with Chinese and North Korean incursions than it is with um, the presence of U.S. bases. So it was after the fact that the U.S. and Japan agreed in a series of two plus two statements to reduce the burden in Okinawa. In fact, it really only became a major topic between the President and Prime Minister in the September 2004 meeting in New York, um, where it was a, a major topic of conversation, and they um, ordered the two bureaucracies to get to work on a transformation plan to strengthen the alliance and reduce the burden on Japan, and especially on Okinawa. The, the Prime Minister had raised Okinawa before, but it hadn't been um, a central driver for their vision for the alliance, frankly, until September 2004. So this transformation basis part it, we're playing catch-up on, and we have a good 2 plus 2 agreement, but it's going to have to be implemented. Um, so the alliance is in pretty good shape. I haven't mentioned um, other areas like missile defense. I think Andrew um, went through a good description of the areas where we strengthen the alliance. What next? Um, obviously, we have to actually implement this 2 plus 2 agreement. Um, all politics are local. The breakup of the 1955 LDP system, which was one of Prime Minister Kuizumi's greatest accomplishments, now makes it much harder to um, broker agreements in Okinawa because you needed that old LDP system to cut the deals. So the Prime Minister and his successor are on their own. <laughs> They're going to have to create their own mechanism for um, implementing these deals and getting local um, politicians in Okinawa to agree in a much more fluid and media-driven Japanese political environment. It won't be easy. I'm, on balance, optimistic it will be pulled off, but it won't be easy, and um, history is littered with failed efforts to um, reduce the burden on Okinawa. Second, um, uh, Japan, uh, I think, uh, has, um, has to um, um, articulate uh, its vision for Northeast Asia. Um, and for Asia more, more broadly. Um, I think the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Kuizumi, um, has um, achieved what no previous Prime Minister achieved in terms of strengthening the U.S.-Japan alliance and also strengthening Japan's global presence. And the BBC poll that um, Andrew alluded to, that I alluded to, that, <laughs> that mentions Japan as, as having uh, the highest uh, profile for and, and best response internationally for playing a global role s s says it all. Um, uh, the, I, I collected the G8 photos when I was in the White House. And traditionally, the G8 summit photos, except for Nakasone, almost every single Japanese prime minister is all the way on the end standing alone. Um, every single G8 photo since Prime Minister Kuizumi became prime minister, he and the president are laughing and talking. And my favorite one was Sea Island because the 
the prime minister is doing this in the picture, and what he's doing is telling the president about the pitch he threw at Yankee Stadium and how it you know was a perfect um, slider. And the president's laughing. And you can see in the background Putin and, 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 and Chirac trying to get in the conversation, but of course knowing nothing about baseball. Um, he, the prime minister really, um, I think, uh, um, increased Japan's vision and impact globally. The, the area that has not been uh, filled out is Northeast Asia. And the prime minister's first speech to the Diet was interesting because every prime minister before him in some form said the cornerstones of Japan's foreign policy are the U.S.-Japan alliance, the U.N. system, and Asia. And Prime Minister Kuizumi said U.S.-Japan alliance and international um, solidarity, um, that Japan was going to be a global player. And he pulled that off very, very effectively, and all the polls show it. But the polls also show that there's a, there's a problem, and that's Northeast Asia, because as Andrew said, China and Korea do not think Japan's playing a positive role, and they have their own domestic political reasons and, and, and so forth, but I think it's a challenge now. Um, I do not think this is just about Yasukuni or the history issue. Um, it's, it's much more complicated and much broader than that. And I, for one, hope that Japan uh, does not deal with this as a history issue, because it's also about what kind of vision Japan now wants to, f to flesh out for Asia and, and, and for Northeast Asia. <laughs> I think it should be uh, a vision based on Japan's values. And you hear um, Foreign Minister Aso, Prime Minister Koizumi, Abe Shinzo, and others talking about Japan as democracy, about rule of law. Some of this is a reaction to China's use of the history card, but I think some of it is real. And these kinds of norms um, can sometimes start because of a change in the external environment. Japan's pacifist norms, af after all, started because of a change in the external environment. And I think it's um, quite possible that this um, sense of, uh, of, of global norms could be socialized and internalized and institutionalized in Japanese foreign policy. Already, um, the prime minister's office has created a, um, a, a kind of a national security council for overseas development assistance and has put out guidance that make rule of law, democracy, um, uh, and freedom key pillars of Japan's use of ODA. Words still, but I think there's a good chance these will be institutionalized. Do not think of this about ele as, as elections. You know, this is not a, a sort of neocon vision where elections will, will make all well. This is about norms having to do with intellectual property rights, transparency, things that Japan needs China to do um, for very practical reasons, but also things that drive Japan's own identity as China tries to play a kind of values-neutral um, uh, uh, vision for Asia um, using the history card on China, on Japan, and, 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 and peddling um, a, a vision that's, that's more 19th century, that's about non-interference in internal affairs. So I, I think um, this is an important thing for Japan. It's not enough to say we're a democracy and China's not. That's not a policy. <laughs> it's a talking point. So it's going to have to be somehow, I think, implemented. Um, we're talking about the alliance, but econ has always been important in the alliance. Article 2 of the Security Treaty is about the economic relationship. People sometimes forget that. Um, we have a good economic relationship, very interdependent, relatively little bashing. Um, but um, there's beef, but on the whole, it's good. Um, I think the challenge in this area is for Japan to have um, to do its homework with respect to agricultural policy so that Japan can reach out and play a more dynamic role in the WTO or in regional free trade. Um, Japan will host APEC in 2010. According to the Bulgore goals, the Bulgore Declaration of APEC, there's supposed to be liberalized trade among the industrial members, industrialized members of APEC. It's probably not going to happen. Um, one of the reasons is the drag of the agricultural lobby in Japan. So that's, that's, that's an area. Um, two more. 
um, uh, or I'll do one more. Um, there's going to have to be, I think, some kind of comprehensive um, legislation to allow the next prime minister and the prime minister after that to dispatch the self-defense forces based on consultation with the diet, but not based on having to pass a law every time. Um, and, and my sense is that Mr. Fukuda and Mr. Abe both have this in mind, and it's likely to happen. But it is important to have a legislative legal framework for Japan to dispatch the um, self-defense forces without putting it at risk. If you have a diet um, crisis over agriculture policy or scandals, you know, Japan's national security policy could be frozen. Um, some of you know what the ox walk is. This is what the opposition uses to prevent bills from passing. They line up, they call for a, for a ballot vote on a bill, and then they take one step every 10 minutes. If you are fans of ska, it's kind of like the guy who dances for madness. That's a pretty obscure reference. They basically take hours and hours and hours. It's a kind of um, filibuster. You know, if that happens over an unrelated issue, Japan will be frozen in a crisis. So there has to be some kind of legal framework. The U.S. has work to do, too. Um, this this um, Armitage Report vision is, is fraying a little bit. Um, we need to do a better job on our side reading Japan in, getting Japan in on issues like Iran sooner. Um, so the U.S. has work to do as well. Um, and uh, I think there needs to be a broader public U.S. debate among people who care about it, like Cato Institute is doing, on where we think the U.S.-Japan alliance ought to go. Finally, um, four variables. Um, Andrew introduced um, a vision of Japan-U.S. alliance relations in 10 years. And if I were betting my mortgage, um, I would probably bet on that vision. But as Andrew pointed out, there can be exogenous shocks that drive us in different directions. Um, one is North Korea. Um, in the event, however unlikely, that we have a diplomatic outcome based on the September joint statement last year, the six parties will start negotiating a peace mechanism and an arrangement for Northeast Asia um, that will have critical um, import for Japan's strategic position and the U.S.-Japan alliance in terms of the legal basis of the alliance and in terms of our vision of where our security relationship goes. We need to get that right. In the event that North Korea um, is not willing to diplomatically give up their nuclear weapons, we'll have a real shock to the credibility of the alliance. And we have to do some very hard thinking about how to um, reassure Japan about our extended nuclear deterrent, how to take other steps like missile defense to complement it, supplement it. And, and we're going to have to think about the alliance in a new, more volatile context. Second, China. Um, China's military buildup is partly a function of their GDP growth, but it has a lot to do with the failure of the PLA to deal with um, with Li Dong Wei in 1995-96 and the ability of the American Navy to move carrier task forces in the region with impunity. Um, China's been on a 10-year um, spending frenzy. Um, I was in Taiwan two weeks ago. Most Taiwan observers think there's a good chance that the situation politically in Taiwan is going to actually stabilize and that pushes for independence are actually going to subside. And most China scholars I talk to think it doesn't matter because the PLA buildup will keep going. So Japan's defense spending is still less than 1% of GDP. The programs that the JDA talks about are not targeted at China. It's missile defense, it's humanitarian relief, it's things like that. What will happen in 10 years if China's defense spending and its blue water navy keeps going like this? I would argue it's going to have an effect on, on, on Japanese strategic thinking even greater than today. Um, third, the U.S. commitment. Um, what does the impact on Japanese strategic thinking if we drop the ball on something important like North Korea? or like um, even the senkaku Daiyutai dispute. The U.S. has to really, I think the U.S. government has to have a really fine-tuned sense of what's strategically important to Japan. And finally, the great untested variable in Japan's uh, security normalization, which is 
Um, what happens if Japan takes casualties? Uh, nobody knows. Um, the GSDF did a great job, but what if what would happen to this whole process and this strategic cultural shift if the ground self-defense forces had had casualties or mass casualties uh, in Iraq or somewhere else? Nobody really knows. Clearly, the defense agency doesn't want to find out, and they're being very, very careful. Um, would it cause the whole thing to just melt away and a, and a resurgence of pacifism? Or would it fuel a sense in Japan's strategic culture that there is evil and danger in the world and they need to get more serious about their defense? Um, uh, we just don't know. And as Japan continues to play a role, the up possibility that this could happen increases. Um, and this is one that Andrew may have views on. I think it's very hard to predict. So I'll end with that great uncertainty, and thank you. <clears throat> We have about uh, 15 minutes or so for input from the audience. Uh, a few ground rules. Uh, if you have a question, please raise your hand and wait for me to call on you. Also, please wait for the microphone so that everyone can hear your question. Um, I would ask that you identify yourself and your affiliation and indicate uh, if there is a a specific panel member to whom the question is directed or if it's directed to the panel generally. I would also ask please make sure it is in the form of a question and let's keep it brief so that we have uh, time for uh, multiple questions. Yes, down here in the first row. Um, thank you. My name is Kaori Iidai. I'm with NHK, Japanese Public Television. I'd like to address my question to Mr. Green on Iran. Um, to what extent do you think the Iran issue will be discussed between our two leaders later this month? And how do you see this Iran issue um, playing out within the, 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 um, the U.S.-Japan relationship? And also, um, during the weekend, Secretary Snow in St. Petersburg, Russia, made it very clear to um, his Japanese counterpart that the Bush administration is very serious on Iran. He didn't use the word financial sanctions, but he did say he wanted to see some cooperation on the financial front from the Japanese side. And also we have the Azadegan oil field issue, which you wrote um, in the Nikkei Shimon recently. Can you share with us what you think the Bush administration is expecting from the Japanese government and the Japanese private sector? Because we're very confused. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> is this on? Um, just so everyone knows, I'm no longer in the Bush administration. I left in December. I grew a beard. I went hiking in New Zealand for a month. <laughs> um, I don't think Iran is going to be a crisis in U.S.-Japan relations. Um, this Azadegan issue bubbled up about three years ago, and, and when we brought the two governments together and had a good discussion on strategically how we should move forward um, and um, agreed that um, uh, we would work hard on our non-proliferation agenda, and the foreign ministry has been quite strong and vocal in the IAEA to press Iran to conform to its obligations. Um, in a sense, we agreed to put this whole energy issue um, on the shelf and see how things developed. Um, it, it, they've developed badly. <laughs> That's why this has come up again. <clears throat> I think that the... Um, uh, uh, the Japan, there's a process now that, 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 that came out of the um, EU3 discussions and then merged with the P5 in the UN. So you now have six parties coordinating on this. And Japan is trying to get in, and Japan should be in. Absolutely. Um, I think that the Japanese side, um, to contribute, 
and Japan can definitely contribute, should bring ideas about how Iran works. Japan has good relations with Iran. Um, but also is going to have to bring some sticks or some ideas about consequences because all of the other parties, even China and Russia, have agreed in principle um, to, the, to the need for some sticks in this process. Maybe they're toothpicks, but at least, <laughs> at least they're sticks. So I think if Japan comes in with that kind of comprehensive strategic view, um, it will play an ever larger role because it will be hard to implement without Japan. And by the way, I'm, I, I'm certain, certain that President Bush and Prime Minister Kuisman will talk about Iran. It's one of the major challenges we face today. Next question? Yes, over here in the uh, fourth row. Thank you. My name is Takuya Nishimura with Hokkaido Shimbun in Washington, D.C. office. Um, I would like to ask about the, uh, how, how do you expect the strong leadership to next leader in Japan? Um, Actually, uh, the next leader will be elected in the, in the fall, but the, it is very uh, suspicious that next leader can have a strong leadership as strong as Koizumi, uh, uh, Prime Minister Koizumi. So, and if they if he fail to uh, uh, perform that kind of strong leadership, what is the impact to United States? Uh, in the, taking responsibility in world, uh, in the world. Let me take that first because I did address that a little bit in my paper. I mean, and Andrew mentioned it and Mike did as well. That the relationship has to transcend. Obviously, Koizumi, who's who will leave later on this year, but also George Bush, who will leave in two and a half years. So to look at the relationship over a 10 or, or 15 or 20 year period, obviously that's transcending any one individual politician. The point that I try to make in my paper is that someone like Koizumi, who's extremely popular, was able to carry off, it seems to me, uh, the or, or to push forward the deployment of, of troops to Iran, to Iraq, excuse me, and to be able to do so even in the face of some public opposition, and I think it would be less less likely that a somewhat less popular politician, someone did not enjoy Kuzumi's personal popularity, would do that. And therefore, you're only likely to see that kind of a dispatch when there is strong public support in Japan, as opposed to the kind of ambivalence that we saw in the summer of 2003. So that's my take on it. Anybody else with comments? Andrew? You know, along, a, along a similar vein, I mean, I think it's an, an excellent question. Um, I was thinking and during Mike's comments of his you know throwing and catching idea it's a it's a great image and I th I do think it's a it, it's a good way to convey one of the ideas of the Armitage report but I think at another level it's somewhat misleading because uh, I don't think purposely so but you know to to play catch all you need is a ball and a glove but I think that the one of the really principal problems in U.S. Japan defense cooperation is that Americans I think are are, are largely unaware that there's such a huge imbalance between the U.S. defense establishment and the Japanese defense establishment. And so f in order for Japan to play the game in together with the U.S., to think together about strategic planning, um, to form you know, responses to issues as diverse as Iran and North Korea and, and China, uh, it needs a much greater policymaking capacity. And I just don't see that happening. I mean, we're talking about not just an extra 10 percent or an extra 20 percent. You know, I mean, there, there are issues that come up in this alliance cooperation uh, that seem obscure, like um, classification 
classification of secrets, for example. Uh, but this is important because in the U.S., even our huge defense department alone isn't enough for creating our global strategies. We need the RAND Corporation. We need the think tank community. We need all these other places. And there's nothing like that in Japan. And part of the reason is because outside people outside the government don't coordinate together with Japanese policymaking. So although it seems like such an, an obvious path and an easy image, it really is beyond Koizumi and Bush cooperating. And it's also beyond the next prime minister, even if you have a stronger leader. It takes much more than that, which is why I'm, I'm somewhat more pessimistic about how, how fast this is going to move forward. But the start, of course, is the prime minister. Um, I think people were surprised by Prime Minister's strong leadership, especially the Hashimoto faction was surprised. <clears throat> so I wouldn't count Mr. Abe or Fukuda or also or Tanigaki out. Um, uh, the, the Iraq dispatch wasn't that popular. I think the Prime Minister did it precisely because it helped to break down the old guard that he was working against. Um, I think Mr. Abe or Mr. Fukuda are going to have an agenda. Um, and they'll move it forward. Um, they each have different leadership styles. <clears throat> um, I think Abe is able to appeal to the younger generation. I think Fukuda is, 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 is able through a very strong sense of competence and expertise to appeal to you know, the business community, but they have their kind of bases. Um, but either one of them, I think, is, is a potential strong leader. And as Chief Cabinet Secretary and Deputy Chief Cabinet Secretary during 9-11, they were critical, and they were very, very strong. Um, and they functioned almost like a virtual National Security Council within the Prime Minister's office by strength of their personalities. And the bureaucracies worked to them um, rather than through the sort of typical cabinet system. Um, and um, it was ad hoc. But I think that both Mr. Fukuda and Mr. Abe experienced that, and my guess would be they'll want more of a structure to support their leadership. Uh, based on their experiences in the uh, Prime Minister's office. And I think they will do it. I think there will be more capacity. Um, the other thing I would say is I think Andrew's right. I mean, Japan has nowhere near the capacity of the U.S. Um, we can debate whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that the U.S. has so many think tanks. But, um, but uh, this is an area where, you know, the U.S. has 50-plus years of playing this game based on early National Security Council decisions and so forth. One thing I would point out, though, um, uh, under the... Koizumi period, the role of outside advisory groups, whether it's on economic reform or overseas development assistance, has been, or unfortunately for us, food safety, <laughs> has been really, really um, critical. And so I think ideas in Japan are being generated from the outside much more effectively than in the past, which is an opportunity, frankly, for the think tanks in the two countries to start doing more together to create a, a, a common vision. Uh, question in the back on the uh, right side. Yes. Elizabeth Garan with GAO, and my question is for Chris Preble. I'm curious, um, as part of your research, um, the definition of uh, a normal a normal nation. Um, you talked a little bit about the differences within Japan, but as part of your research, um, what about outside of Japan, and how how do the countries uh, that surround Japan within East Asia how do they define? A normal country? How do they define a normal Japan? Um, the short answer is not the way I do. Um, and and I, I mean, I think, actually, it's, it's quite striking because I, just as a, as a kind of anecdote, I met uh, recently a, a, someone who's quite knowledgeable about, about Asia, has worked in Asia for some time. I have tremendous respect for him. And at the, I mentioned that I had just completed a paper on U.S. Japan and not telling him what the title was. He said, of course, 
uh, Japan's definition of normal is not what our or other people's definition of normal is. So you're, you're right to fix on this kind of key concept. For me, normal is the capacity to defend oneself without any dependence upon a foreign power, period. End of discussion. That's what a normal nation is, fully sovereign and not in any way dependent. Now, as I stress in my paper, Japan is not dependent in the sense that their military is quite capable, but as Andrew just pointed out, their capability is there's a huge disparity, and there is still clearly a sense in Japan that the alliance is essential for their security and perhaps even their survival. They're not yet a normal nation in that sense. Normal nations do not feel a sense of dependence upon a foreign country for their for their survival, and that's where I th- that's what I mean by two normal nations driving in that direction. Right. Let's see. Yes, here on the right. Jin Suk Lee of NBC Television, uh, South Korea. Uh, this question is to um, Chris Preble. You said in your policy analysis that um, the United States should not prevent the Japanese from owning, from developing their own nuclear weapon system. Wouldn't this aggravate the security situation in uh, East Asia, which is already um, not in good condition because of the North Korea's uh, nuclear program? And uh, secondly, uh, I would like to ask you how widely this view is shared uh, among the policymakers in the Bush administration. Thank you. I'm going to answer the question by by answering it in a slightly different way. So, So... Uh, bear with me. Um, I do not believe the United States should be in a position of telling any country that they should not develop nuclear weapons unilaterally. That is, the United States should not be in a position of doing that. We do that in a de facto way by our uh, security guarantee, our nuclear umbrella. Okay, That is intended to be uh, discourage, discourage other countries from developing nuclear weapons. But actually, a, a study that was quite influential was a su- the study that Ted mentioned by Andrew, which is the, the notion that, that even in the face of security challenges which might otherwise warrant or seem to warrant an independent nuclear deterrent, I am not at all convinced that, the, that Japan will go in that direction for all of the reasons that Andrew develops in his fine paper, and I encourage Andrew to jump in on this as well. Um, so ultimately, it comes down to my what I stress in my remarks, that I do not believe over time that a, an extended nuclear deterrent is as credible as other forms of defense, but that is not the only form of defense that Japan has at, their, has at their disposal. We've already talked about missile defense. We've talked about other things that are non-military entirely, um, other ways to dissuade uh, and, and encourage North Korea to, to, in this particular case, North Korea, to disavow nuclear weapons. So um, I... I mean, I, it comes down to kind of basic fundamental sense that the United States should not be in a position or, or play the role of, of telling other countries how and how they should defend themselves. Andrew, do you want to weigh in on that? I guess I would say, yeah, just just briefly that uh, to your question of whether Japanese d- development of nuclear weapons would aggravate the security situation in East Asia, I think that it would, and I think that most Japanese policymakers think that it would as well, and I think this is one of the primary reasons why Japan hasn't developed nuclear weapons. It's one reason. Another reason is what many people call this nuclear allergy uh, that, that Japan supposedly has in the domestic politics front, and in the, in the volume that, that Chris Preble mentioned, I wrote a chapter on domestic politics of nuclear weapons, and there is a strong sense against nuclear weapons in Japan in, in the domestic political front. But that's not the only reason. And another reason, is, as you sort of brought up through your question, is that it's really not in Japan's interest to develop nuclear weapons from a strategic perspective either. Can I just add briefly, um, I don't think anybody in the government currently is pushing for Japan to have nuclear weapons. 
could be wrong, but I, I don't think so. Um, although I, do, I would say Chris makes a good point. The U.S. should not be telling uh, allies, don't develop nuclear weapons. I think we're in a new era where what the U.S. should be doing is talking through uh, with Japan as an ally its security concerns, um, how it can best defend against other nuclear weapons threats. And, and, and don't start with the premise that Japan is not entitled. Start with the premise that Japan's entitled to security and talk through um, how we make sure Japan has security. I think that the outcome will be um, that the Japanese side um, decides it doesn't want nuclear weapons, that the extended nuclear deterrent is better for its own um, security. But we shouldn't I think we're in an era, you know, this is in the no Gaiatsu era, I think we're in an era where we shouldn't be starting with a certain premise that Japan can't have them, but rather with, and with the ROK or any ally, we need to talk through strategically and, and frankly um, what the best way to maintain peace is. We have time for one more question. Yes. From GG Press. Um, my question is um, related to his first one, Carl Kerry's one. Um, end of this month, Prime Minister will come to this time and uh, he will meet with Mr. President. And uh, what kind of expectation do you have for this uh, uh, President Bush and Mr. Prime Minister Kuzmi's meeting? Uh, how do you characterize this meeting? Is this just some kind of the farewell party for Mr. Kuzmi? <laughs> <laughs> Mike, you should take that. Um, it, uh, in some ways, it is a valedictorian visit. You know, it's sort of like uh, the um, graduation speech, um, uh, because the prime minister, of course, will be in office only a few months after after he returns to Japan. Um, I think it's an opportunity for the two leaders to um, review what they've done together, um, maybe sort of as we're doing here today and to put out uh, some uh, vision um, uh, for the two governments and for the American Japanese people about um, what um, is um, enduring. Um, and I think um, those things would include uh, our common um, interests, but also our common values, um, the idea of a strategic relationship that should be uh, regional and global. Um, uh, hopefully not, we won't have them talking about BSE, but <laughs> hopefully that will be resolved, the beef issue. Um, but I think to sort of, you know, um, have a valedictorian um, meeting, but one that lays a good uh, groundwork for the two governments and for the two publics um, as the next prime minister takes over. Um, and it's a good opportunity to do that because um, all of the candidates in, are going to carry on the basic um, outlines of, of what Prime Minister Kuzmi and President Bush have done. You know, Fukuda and Abe are a little different on Asia. Um, they're a little different. You know, Asa is a little different on the economy. They all have their, their different angles, their different personalities and styles. But on the U.S.-Japan alliance, we don't have a major debate. I think they're going to, any of them, are going to want to consolidate um, the accomplishments. So it's an important visit. It's not like the usual last summit visit of a prime minister. Finally, I think the, um, I mean, I can tell you from personal experience, the, the President Bush really likes hanging out with Prime Minister Kuzumi, and I think it's mutual. So um, there will be some work, but I think they'll also, um, uh, you know, spend some time um, with their families and, and having fun, too, because it's that kind of relationship, and um, you're allowed to have friends when you're a leader. <laughs> That brings our program to an end. 
Uh, we have a reception beginning upstairs in the Winter Garden immediately following. You're all welcome to attend. Please join me in ex giving a round of applause to our fine panel and their presentations.